This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. Hello and welcome back. Today I have the lovely, amazing, super brilliant Emily Bingham here today. If you don't know Emily, you should know Emily. Um, she is fantastic and all over social media platforms with incredible reels and posts and, and videos and I mean, I think you write beautifully, Emily. I think you are clearly very creative in, in how you reach people with your message. Um, so welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I am so excited to be here, Karen. And I feel the same about you. I love your energy. I love the way that you share. And I love this podcast that you're doing. So thanks for having me on. Oh, bless you. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. You're doing amazing things. You really are doing amazing things in, in the world of, of grief. I know obviously you're over in America and and you have so much support going on. I think like every five minutes you're coming up with a, another program. You're so, you're so creative. You're so out there and, and, you know, in supporting people through all aspects of, of widowhood from the early days right the way through to, to dating and beyond. I think you're supporting people now in creating their own businesses and their own support networks, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, I love it. It's so fun. Yes, I get one thing thing I love about this work as a grief coach is that my programs get to evolve as I do and my community gets to come along for the ride. And, um, I think that's what makes this journey just so unique. I love it. It is. It is so unique. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your, your husband, Ian. All right. So this is a long story, so we'll try to keep it succinct, but I met my husband, Ian, in college. We were 18 years old, fell madly in love, <laughs> you know, just this storybook romance and um, dated through college, took a little break. To, and then as we were on a break, we discovered that he was diagnosed with uveal melanoma. Now at the time I, we both were like, okay, what is this? We're going to fight it. We're going to be fine thinking that we're totally invincible. So ironically, his cancer diagnosis brought us back together because I think almost at a subconscious level, it's like, okay, bad things can happen. Let it really crystallize like what's important in life. We were kind of on our own paths. Um, exploring our career. And I think that his diagnosis is what kind of brought us back together. And so we got back together, you know, did some me different medical visits, um, but we really just kind of felt that the cancer was behind us. He did some radiation. Um, and then we got married. We started a young family, you know, did all of the things. And then um, he, in 2017, we found out that his cancer metastasized. And this was at a time where we had already had our first daughter and I was pregnant with my second son. And so that kind of began the beginning of my grief journey right there. I didn't know it at the time, but that was when I entered into anticipatory grief, which was just the, you know, you're already kind of grieving the life that you had prior to your person's diagnosis, that sense of normalcy, um, 
being able to be this young family together, we were already grieving that then. And then I was also anticipating Ian's death and all of the emotions that come up with having to navigate that. So Ian fought about 15 months and then he passed away um, in March of 2019. And um, since then, it's been an entirely new life. You know, I navigated early grief by finding my coping outlet in exercise, um, by also connecting with other widows, um, by finding meaning and purpose really early on in sharing my story and um, hearing from others that it was really supporting them. And that's kind of what launched what my movement is today around my company move through. But my loss has just changed me at so many different levels. Um, It's been really painful. It's been really hard and there's no you know, getting past that, the growth and the goodness that has come from this experience doesn't minimize the tragedy, all of it. And I think um, one thing that I really pride myself on and try to encourage others to do too, is that like living after a loss is so much about holding that duality that exists in life, yet we fail to see it as a society. And what I mean by that is that the human experience is full of pain and suffering just as much as joy and love and gratitude. And I believe that the way that we learn to not just survive a loss, but to thrive is by embracing those parts. Yeah, I think you're so right. You you know, it's, it's a lived experience, isn't it? And you can't have one without the other. And yeah, it'd be great if we could all be happy all the time and, and not experience pain and heartache. But if we weren't going to experience those things, we wouldn't experience that the love and, and the joy that, that does coexist, that, you know, they run alongside each other and making space for both of those things is, is tough because I think we're kind of taught it's one or the other and, and, and that's how it works. And I think grief teaches us a lot in that respect. Do you think the, you, you had your anticipatory grief that you talked about there, um, when you knew Ian's illness was, was terminal. Do you think that prepares you for the moment that Ian died, that, you know, he, he left his, his, his body in the physical sense and and then you had to continue do you, do you feel that there's a preparation in that yes and no like i it, and it's hard right now i think to take myself from my own experience and from what i've seen with others because and what i will say is that this is my experience and it's not the same as everyone else's right so for me what happened in terms of the anticipatory grief leading up is um I feel like it might have taken some of the edge of the shock off a little bit. Um, I was also able to see the passing as I would, I would say less traumatic because I was kind of eased into it. Um, I was able to say goodbye. Um, but what I have recognized in my healing now being almost four years out is that I actually dissociated during that time. Uh, and that's a trauma response. And it was during the time of hospice where this really happened when the doctors were like, your husband's actually dying. And what was interesting in my experience is that prior to that, I didn't have one doctor actually say that Ian was dying. It was so focused on hope. We're going to survive. We're going to beat this. Right. And it wasn't until a month 
before his actual death, where someone was like, your husband has cancer everywhere and he's dying. Like the next step is, is focusing on, you know, quality of life and comfort. So, and that's when we entered into hospice. So I, I just feel like it's kind of a mixed bag. Like I, I feel like at the time it felt like it was easier to accept because I dissociated and I was so disconnected, um, from the reality that I was living in. And that was my body's way of trying to protect me from the pain. Right. And even in the, I would say even the six month after I was still in this degree of like shock and numbness to, to my reality. So, um, I think, like I said, it gave me some pieces of peace and closure, but I've also really had to work on going back to that month of hospice and that early grief and the dying experience to really process the pain of that time and what that experience really meant to me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I know you did um, David Kessler's Grief Educators Program at the same time as me, um, which was brilliant. But he he talks about the river of grief, which I love. And, you know, I, I remember he said, you know, some people are thrown into the, the middle of the river with a sudden loss. You, you know, you find yourself catapulted from dry land into the middle of this river that's running wild. Other people walk into the river. You, you know, it's more expected. But Ultimately, we all end up in the middle of this river, not mm. knowing what the hell's going on, how we navigate it, you know, and, and get through, I suppose, the, the, the turbulent waters. Um, so, I, you know, I guess within the, the anticipatory grief, that, that ability to step into the river um, is there. But however, you still end up in it and you've still got to deal with, with the aftermath. Yes. I love that analogy. And I think that's exactly it. Like, I feel like at the time I was like, Oh, I'm so prepared for this, but then, you know, your person passes away and then there's still all of this shock and disorientation on the other side because your life is completely new and foreign now. So, and, and just that like acceptance of death is just, I mean, that's like a lifelong journey, I believe. So you do, you find yourself in that current anyways. Um, so that makes, that's a perfect analogy. And I think it, again, like it's so different for everyone. And that I think is the important thing with all of this, isn't it? That we all do this differently. All our experiences are are different. Um, all, all of our situations are different. All of our support systems are different and there's no right or wrong way. It's just trying to find your way. Now, obviously since Ian's died, like you say, you've you founded your company, moved through, and you've created a great support structure there, um, virtually and in person, because you do your retreats now. Um, and in that, in in the growing of what you do and creating an awareness that you're out there, you are so open, you are so vulnerable in what you share on on social media, and some of the things that you share are pictures of Ian and, and some videos of Ian whilst he's ill, some whilst he's, you know, clearly very ill and and close to the end. Was that a difficult decision to make, to share that part of your life? Because it's one thing talking about it, isn't it? But it's, but it's another thing sharing it. And I think it's incredibly brave. So how did you come to that 
decision was was it difficult for you well for most anything that i share on social media it's like i think early on it was like it was me bleeding onto the pages of social media it was literally me and my raw emotion just like getting it out there and i didn't even really know what i was doing in the beginning um and i think part of that was like i don't even believe i made a conscious choice in the beginning to start to share those images for me i was like i need somebody else to witness what I am going through to see what it is to witness your loved one dying and to, and to watch their body fade in from this like strong man to this like human shell. And what does that look like? What does it feel like? I, w- I felt so alone in that experience, I think. And I was like, I just need somebody else out there to understand like a fraction of what I'm going through. And so that's when I began to put those images out there. As I kind of became more intentional with my pieces of my story that I was sharing, um, I consciously chose, and and I did, I I started to get um, some pushback, even from Ian's friends and family um, and from strangers on the internet. Well, would your husband want those pictures to be out there? Would, you know... He, did, would he, yeah, would he want that? And I, I, I had to sit with that for a bit. And I was like, I, you know, I, I, I honestly, I don't know. I think if I were to be able to have a conversation with Ian right now and he were to hear me say, like, I needed that piece of my experience witnessed for myself and knowing that I needed that witness for myself. I also know that others needed that witness too, right? It's like, I, cause on the flip side, I've also had people reach out and say, thank you for sharing that. It is so hard and awful to go through that experience alone. So if Ian was alive and I was able to explain that to him, I think he'd be like, hell yeah. And as I've thought about it some more, it's like, I can say my husband died. How many times before your person's death, right? Were you like, you'd hear of someone dying and it's like, oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. And it's pretty easy to just move along with your day. But once you see the image, it's like, whoa, it stops you in your tracks. There's a visceral, visceral reaction to that where you're forced to kind of witness, witness death, acknowledge it. It's here. It's a part of our life. And it's not just you know, the stranger down the street, but we see our own mortality. We see our own children or our own loved ones dying too. And so the reason why there's such an aversion to this and why people on the internet, you know, have said, oh my gosh, like freak out about these images is because it's giving them a taste of their own mortality and nobody wants to look at that. We are so in denial of death as a society. So, um, yes, I, I did it originally to be witnessed in my own experience. Now it's to bring an awareness around death to also release the stigma, the fear, even the shame Because when you feel alone in a situation like that, you can internalize it and that creates a sense of shame. So it's to release all of that and to acknowledge an experience that's so universal and so sacred, yet we're so afraid of it, to talk about it and acknowledge it as a society. You're so right. You know, it it is very scary and and people don't want to talk about it. You know, it's it's hard facing the thought of of your own mortality or even, you know, somebody that you love that's close to you and and seeing that is, is difficult for sure. But you're right. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are going through that, that feel very alone in it. And, and that's what you're trying to do is reach those people, right? And, and help them feel less alone and less isolated and to let them know that, that you're there. Um, and that there are people out there that, that get it because it's, it's not shared. It's not talked about enough. Right. 
And it can feel really victimizing when you feel alone in it. And when you create a story around it like this, and you know, to a degree, it's like a bad thing did happen to all of us. Nobody wants to lose someone we love. But if we can start to reframe the story and recognize that death is a natural passing, and yes, of course, we never want to lose someone before we expected them to. We want them to be with us forever. But if we can start to release the story and acknowledge it as like, this is something that happens to all of us, we can kind of break down those walls of victimhood to allow us to move forward. So did did you and Ian talk about the after um, whilst he, you know, whilst he was still alive, but knew that he was going to die? Did you discuss what he wanted for you and the children or what you wanted? What did, what discussions did you have around that? Zero. <laughs> Like, I wish that we had more. And this is because we were in such denial of his death. Again, another reason why it's like, it's not something to be feared. It is something to be discussed because I do wish that I had had those conversations with Ian. Um, I did try to bring up the conversations a couple of times. And for Ian, he just was not able to acknowledge it. And I don't fault him for it. I have been angry with him and I've worked through a lot of that anger because I do believe that grief, the experience of loss is a shared journey. It's like, but we, in our experience, we did focus only on the dying. It wasn't, it wasn't about the people who he was leaving behind. It was about Ian and that's fine. We didn't know any better. I don't hold any grudges, but I do, if I could rewrite that, story and share with others. It's like, have the hard conversations. Um, we're not, we're not in that much control. We can't predict the outcome as much as the doctors think that you can, as much as the medical studies, whatever. It's like this, this is a possibility for all of us. And to have those conversations about life after, um, even if you aren't sick, I think is such an important conversation to be had. Yeah. So right. And, you know, I speak to so many people and so much you that have a similar story that, you know, they knew their person was going to die, but that the conversations were just too hard, too difficult to, to, to bring up, mm-hmm. to start, to have. And, and that's okay, right? Because we're all just doing our best and, and you have to go with what feels right at the time. And, and that was obviously right for you guys. Um, there, there's no right or wrong. It's just, it's so difficult. And you kind of touched on there how little we understand about grief and death and um, what little knowledge and understanding we have about it as a society. You know, we do live in a grief illiterate society, but why? Why? What? What's going on? Like, why are we living in this when it's the only certainty that we all have in life? What? Why is it not? Why are we not more open about it and more understanding of it? Right. Well, and I actually read. I just listened to a podcast with Megan Devine, and it was really interesting. Um, she was explaining the reason that we kind of just tend to just turn a blind eye has a historical context and that um, it was during one of the wars, maybe World War One, where everyone was dying all around, you know, everyone was dying. And the the government kind of said, all right, keep calm, carry on. Like you kind of turn a blind eye because we still need, we still need to fight the war. We still need, you know, it was like this sense of like patriot patriotism and like, 
let's go. We don't have time for grief. We don't have time for loss and how, you know, this has been ingrained in our society at such a, um, you know, for maybe centuries ago. Right. So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Doesn't it? I think when you go back and, and, and that's passed down, that's handed through, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But like, how do we, how do we change that? Cause I just think it's, it's so hard, isn't it? And I think obviously, you know, we're trying to in our, in our small way in, in, in the world. And I think there's a lot of people out there now. I do think there's a lot more out there talking about grief and loss and trying to, to normalize it and, and offer that support. But I mean, we find it so hard. We find it so hard to access our, our feelings and our emotions and, mm. and work with them. You know, we spend a lot of our time trying to fight them, don't we? And, and like you say, maybe it is that keep calm, carry on, stiff up a lip. You know, we've got this just tight, time heals all wounds. Just keep going. It'll all be all right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just, I don't think, I mean, yes, time heals, you know, a graze on the skin or a broken bone for sure. But I think wounds of the heart that that they need working through, I I Mm -hmm. think, but we just seem so ill-equipped to do that, don't we? Yeah. I talk about this a lot in all of my programs and in my content. And it goes back to, yes, the, 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 um, the societal conditioning that we have around hardship and emotions. The fact that we even label our emotions as bad or good when they are all valid, right? They all deserve reverence. Um, so I think when you find yourself thrown into the depths of grief and you're feeling a lot of these, quote unquote, bad emotions, it leaves room for a lot of judgment and criticism and making the whole experience again, quote unquote, wrong. When grief is such a part, it's it's part of the human experience. It's part of life. We're all going to lose at some point. So a lot of the work that I do is, you know, helping people bring the awareness that they have been conditioned, whether it's by society, religion, culture, um, even by their upbringing. You know, if were emotions allowed in your household, were you told to suck it up and do the stiff upper lip, right? Um, because it's, it's different for everyone. And it really, David Kessler, one of my favorite lines was like, we tend to have emotions about our emotions. We start to feel anxious if an emotion feels too consuming, or we might feel shame for being too angry. We might feel guilty for feeling joy in grief. And what that does is they inhibit us from feeling those core emotions, which are the ones where we need to feel in order to heal, right? We need to process. We need to be with, like you said, um, in order to integrate them, in, in order to integrate this entire experience into our lives. So true. So true. Who taught you to do those things? How did, how did you figure out to do that for yourself in your grief before you went down this path? Oh my gosh, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, so my journey was very much about getting curious. Like it was about exercise, finding coping skills because I wasn't sad. I was so angry, so angry. And it only exacerbated it because being a solo mom to a one-year-old and a three-year-old, I just could not. It was so much. So I had to find a coping outlet for that big energy, for that big emotion. And then once I could move that energy through, I I was in a more connected, calm state of being. Um, but then the rest of this was really self-taught for me. I 
I dove into podcasts, which is why I love that you have one. I listened to like every podcast on grief, on healing. I read every middle widow memoir, um, all the self-help books and, um, what I was just telling you about inhibitory emotions, um, that is from the book, It's Not Always Depression by Hilary Jacobs Handel. And she's talking about, it's called the change triangle. And just, it's a tool to feeling your emotions. Um, I listened to Mark Groves, his podcast, which was primarily on relationships. But um, I just did this deep dive into healing and grief and loss and... Um, I read books about like the choice by Dr. Edith Eager and her story of surviving the Holocaust and how, you know, to take back power when life leaves you feeling powerless. And I just kind of created this, I don't know, just my own little individualized (laughs) healing plan for myself. And then as I started my business, I also learned more through my grief educator certification and just kept gathering all of these tools that worked for me. And now I share them with my clients. So it's kind of a unique blend. I love that. I have to say the choice by Edith Eager, I just think is just such a brilliant book. Such, I mean, that woman just blows me away. Honestly, she's incredible, absolutely incredible. And it just, it does show us the choices that we have, doesn't it? You know, and I'm so passionate about this in what I do because I think it's very easy for for us to say, I had no choice. I had no choice. It's like, but you did, you had choices and you made good choices, you you know, and you're making choices every day and empower yourself with that and and see that. And and it sounds very much like like myself, actually, you you know, in my curiosity around my grief, you know, I, I did do a lot of grief research but I got a bit griefed out <laughs> and I I kind of got to a point where I was like I can't read about any more grief like it's, it's too heavy and which is where I found the world of personal development and and great people uh you know great podcasts and and stuff and like you I kind of immersed myself in that in the books and I feel like that taught me so much, which I love doing now because obviously I educate about grief like you do, but there's so many life skills, aren't there, that come into your healing process that that you get to take forward with you and utilize. They're not just pertinent to grief, are they? They're pertinent Mm. to life. And and this is where I think we're kind of getting it a bit wrong. We're not taught these life skills. We're not taught how to be resilient, how to – empower ourselves to recognize the choices that we're making and and find our way through hardships and and tragedies because you know when you read things like the choice you go oh my god you know people people get through so much we we are wired to adapt we are capable of adapting and and that's powerful I think I think that's really powerful. powerful Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think what this experience has taught me is like, your life is so uncertain. Like we do not control as much as we think that we do. And the only thing that we can control is our, is how we respond. And so the way that we become more resilient and we increase our ability to weather any storm is by doubling down on the investments that we make in ourselves, in the human that we're becoming. And you know, being able to trust that whatever comes our way, we're going to be able to walk ourselves through it. And to me, that's like power. And that's not just in grief, that's in life. Because this isn't going to be the last hardship that we face. No, that's it. And why though? What like, 
I, I found it really hard. I made a big investment in myself, in my journey. I got myself a coach and I was like, what am I doing? I don't understand. Best thing I ever did though, hands down, best thing I ever did. It, it helped me with everything, you, you know, mindset, health, fitness, strength, like my reactions, my responses, my awareness of, of everything around me and the world around me. But it's, it's hard to do that, isn't it? Because we, we're, we don't invest in ourselves. We just keep going. And especially, you know, as a wife and a mom or, you know, work, you know, you've got a job, a career, you're giving, 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 and we don't take that time out for us. And I think that's one of the biggest messages I tend to have is, is take that investment, make it in you and it will pave the way forward in such a positive way. Right. And I think, I think it's, it's hard for people to understand unless they actually put two feet in and make the investment and see the change. And I understand why people don't because there's a lot of fear. There's uncertainty when you make an investment, right? You're, you're accepting a degree of risk because the outcome is unknown. And that's what triggers fear in any situation. Um, because I remember when I made my first investment in my coach too, and I started coaching in a different way. I started coaching around trying to bring my business to life and I still have a business mentor. But what you realize is that the lessons that you learn in navigating business are the same lessons that I'm learning to navigate my relationship that are the same in navigating grief and the same in life. There's just so many different parallels. And that's why like, I am not never going to stop investing in myself because I am my safest asset. And I think there's an initiation when clients, when anyone first makes that first investment, that's an initiation in themselves because they're saying, I am worthy. I am worthy of this. I am capable. I believe that change is possible. And the reason when people don't is because they don't believe. And so something I've been working on is like, and why I think it's really powerful to be vulnerable in content and to share that like, yeah, I still have grief days. Like I still struggle with this is to open up about that and be like, I'm human too. There's nothing different than me, there's nothing that separates me apart from you, right? Like at a very essential human level, we have like, and yes, there's privilege. There's different things that can set us up to be able to access safety and to take these risks. But at a very just like human foundation, it's like, it's it's, it's a choice. It's walking with the fear and putting two feet in and committing to that change and then seeing what happens. And what I think is lovely about it, and like you, I get it, I get it's hard to do that, especially when you've lost your person, your life partner, the, the mm-hmm. you know, the person you would make those choices with that would kind of validate that for you. Um, but it then, you know, where that takes you, it, it reassures you that the choices that you're making are good ones, you know, that you are capable of, of making decisions that are powerful and are going to have such a, a beneficial impact on, on you and your life. Um, but you're right, you've got to take that leap of faith, haven't you, in, in, in the first place to, to see that. So now, um, you, you know, you've kind of told us that you have met your, your new man, David, that mm-hmm. right <laughs> um he looks lovely he looks really lovely do you think do you think ian would have liked david and david would have liked ian? <laughs> i think that they would have liked each other i think they're so different like so so different are they yeah absolutely i almost feel like i've switched roles in a way like like 
David is like who I was in my relationship with Ian and I am like Ian in my relationship with David. Like it's just the dynamics are so incredibly different. What I need and what I desire in a partner has completely changed. Um, yeah, just really what I value now is so incredibly different than what it was when I met Ian as an 18 year old college freshman, you know? So while there are some commonalities, I would say it's just an entirely different relationship. And I've really, really had to learn to let go of the comparisons. I mean, I can love the comparisons, normalize them, acknowledge them, right? Because they're there and we're human. And at the same time, it's like challenge them and really challenge the way that love feels like love feels so different to me now. Um, and something I'm working on just personally is like my ability to love so openly and to give myself, you know, freely to somebody that's been really, that's been a loss. That's been another loss is that I don't feel like I'm able to do that yet. I'm working on it as I, and I know that as I go deeper into my grief, I will be able to expand my capacity to love again, but that's a big wound. And that's actually kind of what led to my breakup with David because we, I I, I didn't trust, I, I made it instead of making the resistance that I was feeling and the fear that I was feeling about me. I put it on him and I, cause I didn't trust myself. I was like, well, if I'm not feeling exactly the same way that I did when I was an 18 year old, then this must be wrong. He must not be the right guy. And so we took a break and I really did a lot of work on myself. I spent a lot of time alone. I didn't date anyone else. I just did therapy and, um, really dove into my grief. And I started to realize like, it's just me. It's just me who's holding myself back. and it's funny. Grief is so freaking sneaky. And this experience of loss is so sneaky because these walls that are built around our heart to protect us now are so subconscious. And so you really have to be doing this deep inner work, I feel, um, to be understanding like why you're showing up the way that you are in, in relationships. I love that because I think it's, it's a great skill to have in life is to adopt that curiosity in everything that goes on for us and and release the judgment release the criticism and get curious like what's going on why am i feeling this what's mm-hmm. triggering this response in me what's happened and and like if you hadn't have done that work you know you it's like probably likely that you and david wouldn't have have reconnected and mm-hmm. um, and you know he's clearly very special very patient and and very in love with you which is beautiful but it's hard it is hard and this is the thing about grief it is sneaky you kind of you work your way through one layer of it and then something else happens in your life and, and then there's another layer of it and whether that's with you and your relationships or with, with children and something that's going on in their lives or something with finances. I don't know. There's so many aspects that the loss kind of sneaks into and they pop up and they bite <laughs> you on the bum and you're like, oh God, that's the grief thing again, isn't it? Like if you go, okay, let's go back, rewind. Yeah, <laughs> let's, exactly. let's, let's dive into that and, and see what's going on. But 
it's hard it's hard to do that I think sometimes to be that honest with yourself and that curious and to sit with the discomfort of those things and acknowledge mm. that actually it's you and and you've got to work through something else but it's worth it it's worth it it's so empowering and I think of couples because I started learning about consciousness through the I through the concept of conscious relationship but how much resistance and conflict we run into in relationship not just with your romantic partners but if with your family members with your friends colleagues because we aren't consciously aware of why we're showing up the way that we are and so I think in the rupture of grief there is an invitation to really go deep and to meet yourself at your essence, beyond these ego roles that we've been conditioned to show up as and to really, really get curious about all of that subconscious programming that's just like buried and to unearth that and to see how it's, it's, um, how we're ultimately programmed, right? Like how it's driving our lives. There's a quote by Carl Jung where he says, until you make the conscious, the unconscious conscious, you live your life and you call it fate. And, Another way of thinking about it too, Glennon Doyle, she says, um, you know, our brains are like computers and the, the, the beliefs, um, the feelings, the way that we show up in life is our programming. And it's all been informed by, right, like religion society. And it's just fascinating. And I, I, I'm getting more into that now, like with my work too, in terms of like, how do I want to live my life? Um, and understanding what parts of myself are holding me back. And what parts do I want to let go of? What parts do I want to embrace? What areas do I want to heal? And it's it's pretty fascinating, empowering stuff. So it is fascinating because we are, we're so unaware of our belief systems, aren't we? And and how we are programmed, and where where even does that come from? And right, what, why do we have those beliefs? Like, where did that come from? Is that even my belief or is that something I've inherited from, from somebody else that I've seen on the telly or my mum's told me or a friend's kind of going with? And and actually, when we sit down and, and question these things, you know, you go, I'm, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure that's for me. And th- what I love, and I think you're going to agree with me here, is the power of community because I know you've mm-hmm. got a great community and and I have my communities, um, you know, with my program, my membership and the power of community and bringing people together and having discussions and talking about belief systems and judgments and all of that kind of good stuff. Like when one person says something, it invites you to explore that within yourself and you mm-hmm. have these like aha moments, don't you? We go, Oh, oh yeah, actually that I kind of, I kind of resonate with that. I think I'm the same and it's, that's amazing, isn't it? And I think I just, I really believe, I truly believe in finding a community of people that are going through something similar because I, I, it blows me away. It blows me away that what people can discover and work through in in those environments we can't do it on our own can we yeah and like that's honestly why I loved group coaching more than one-to-one because I think there's so much power in the group like I can give you all of the tools and you know context from my story right but when you have 10 other widows in the room from different backgrounds from different upbringings right like they're gonna all have a different experience and grief is so incredibly unique but we all know you know, the one universal need of grievers is for that grief to be witnessed. And so you're not only having that space to come 
and share without judgment, without expectation, where you're not, where that grief isn't going to get fixed, but it's going to be held. And yeah, I think that these different, every, each person's unique experience has the potential to not only just normalize and validate something that you're going through, but to unlock like another key, another layer that's going to really shift things for you and give you that invitation to get curious about it for yourself. Like you said, and like looking at these things, isn't always pretty. It's really scary to like lift up the hood and see what's operating beneath the surface. And I think when you do that in community too, and realize, Oh my gosh, she just went there. It kind of gives you the power to do it for yourself. It gives you, it helps you access that courage. Um, and and also know that like, if she survived it, then I can too. Like it, it's, yeah, I, I love the power of community and, um, I've, I've, I've just seen people flourish by coming together and moving through this experience with a close knit family, essentially, who's also going through it too. I think we connect to each other through the highs of life, but man, going through some of the deepest lows, like that's, it's just like a visceral connection. And I just still share one story with you, like move through started by me teaching a spin class. I used to be a spin instructor. And so I literally like gathered a group of people who were going through grief. We went into the spin studio, turned off the lights. I'd play some music. We didn't even have to talk. But what the client said after being in that spin room for 45 minutes, and I kind of like guided them through some things to think about is just by being on the bike together, we could feel that unity. We could feel that connection because we all knew at that deep visceral level, like what it is like to lose. And I thought that was really powerful. That is, it is holding that space for people, isn't it? In whatever way that they need, Mm -hmm. where they they feel seen and and heard and that is one of our biggest needs, isn't it? In all yeah. of it that people struggle to give us because we don't know how to be around grief and, and that's yeah. the, the sadness of it. But, you know, being part of, of these communities, I think is, is so healing, so healing. What you've done so much, Emily, you've achieved so much in, in your journey personally, professionally, um, what do you think has been your your biggest learning through all of this that you you treasure almost that you take forward with you through through having lost Ian and and going through that that, that grief? I think one of the biggest takeaways or the one that feels like really alive for me right now because they continue to change. I mean, I could say early on it was like appreciation for life you know, new, seeing new possibilities for myself, kind of more of like like that post-traumatic growth stuff that was really like lighting me up. But now I'm noticing that like, I believe that life is really made in the void. The growth is also in the void, but what happens all too often is we're kind of, we're in it, we're doing the things, we're doing the work, we're doing the motherhood or business, whatever. And we set a goal for ourselves. And we get so set on this goal, on this next milestone that we want to reach, whether it's, you know, finding a new partner, whether it's enrolling clients in a program. And we get so fixated on that, that we just miss what's happening in the in-between. And that's where life, most of our life is. Because then what happens is you reach the milestone and you're like, okay, what's next? And if you don't even take a second to just celebrate and look back at you know everything that you've walked yourself, everything that you've accomplished, 
um, to, and really to like celebrate it, to be grateful for it, then it just minimizes everything that you've just done. And we end up living a life full of lack. Like we're never, it's never enough. We're never full. We're never whole. And so I've really been embracing this idea of like one foot in gratitude, one foot in desire. You know, like we can always be desiring more for ourselves, wanting more out of life. But like, if you don't have that gratitude piece, it's like, what is it all about? And that's why I say like the void. And I want to bring it back to grief really quick. Cause I think there's so much that you lose after your person dies. And that loss touches everything, like not just your person, but all of the secondary losses that come with it. And what I see is like, we get so fixated on like, I want to get back to normal. I just want my life back. I just want to reach that end goal. Um, you know, and feel normal again, be better, whatever it is. Like, I just want to rebuild my life, find a new partner. And we create so much more suffering for ourselves. It's like bringing that timeline a little bit closer. You're already doing it being back in the now, looking at all of the evidence that is already there to show you that like, you're okay. Maybe you're not thriving yet, but I think we thrive in releasing this expectation on ourselves and just learning to embrace who we are and where we are in this moment. Such a powerful message because I think we're all guilty of that. I know I certainly am, you know, that kind of always working towards something thinking that it's going to be better when you get to a point in time whatever it is you're working towards but actually it's it's not the destination it's the journey right and and we miss it we do miss it and that's that's hard and I get sometimes you know when we are grieving we don't want to be on the journey we want to get to the destination because actually this this journey is too hard too tough but trying to find and focus on what is still good whilst you're on your journey of, of heartache and, and healing. And I think that's a lesson that we all sometimes have to, 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 to think about, to focus on, to, to give time to, isn't it? It's just even when things are so incredibly painful and hard, like what is still good, you know, just what around you. And that might just be a, a text message from somebody, a, 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 you know, your favorite coffee from a coffee shop that gives you some comfort or, right. you know, a TV program or birds singing in the garden. They don't have to be big things, but just those little moments where you go, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, it's, you know, we have to look a little bit harder sometimes to see it, but I think it's there. And, and if we can do that, that grows and and just keeps us focused in the present moment and, and dealing with what we've got in, in that. Because that is all we've got, isn't it? You, you know, like the, the past is is done and the, the future isn't here yet. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a really lovely message. Thank you for sharing yeah. that, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been such a lovely conversation. I could talk to you for so long, but I know you've got to go for a run because you're, <laughs> you're training for a marathon, which is just amazing. I can't imagine it. I, <laughs> I could probably manage well, I don't know 10k but anything beyond that I think I would die <laughs> well, so. and it's been fun because I feel like the marathon's been like a fun analogy for me to play with in grief too like I'm using all these mantras like you know the discomfort is only temporary but the growth on the other side is permanent and how do I find comfort in the discomfort. And I think there's a lot of analogies there with grief. And again, like if I'm only focusing on this finish line of running 26, whatever miles it is, like that's so overwhelming. And so it's like, okay, 
let go of the end goal, release my attachment to the outcome, and just, again, enjoy the journey, enjoy the transformation that my body is going through, not making the suffering and the pain wrong. It's part of the process. It's part of how we transform and grow. And like, there's just so many different analogies that you can take from life to to support yourself through any type of hardship. I love that. It's so true. So where can people find you before you go, Emily? Like what, what are you offering? What's, what's out there at the moment and, and what's yeah. the best way to, to reach out to you and what you do? So now, you know, you've got so much on offer. You probably haven't got time to go through it all, but <laughs> how can people find out? I think I probably have too much. I have too much. Um, no, I, I, so I am active on Instagram and TikTok, so you can find me there. I also have a free Facebook community for grief. Um, uh, it's called move through. And then, um, I just launched my newest offer, which is my move through membership, which really is my way of trying to give people a more flexible, access- accessible option to this work to reduce the fear of investing in themselves and to just plug into a community where they can, they can have their grief witness. They can connect with other widows. They can learn coping skills and not have to navigate this alone. And they can cancel at any time if it doesn't feel aligned for them. So that will be my the plug for my latest program because yes, there are some others, but movethroughgrief.com and that it well i'll tell you what we'll put all the the links in the show notes um so you know people can have a look there but just also move through is t-h-r-u isn't it move through t-h-r-u um and and you'll find emily there emily thank you so much thank you for for coming and sharing your heart and and being open it's been so lovely talking to you and hopefully we'll do it again sometime in the future yes i would love that karen thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to The Widow Podcast with me, Karen Sutton. If you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief, come and join my free Facebook group, Widowed and Rising. And make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Widow Podcast.